0: this morning, I'd ask you to turn to the Gospel of John. We'll be reading uh, from chapter 10, uh, verses 22 to 30. And I apologize, but I'll ask you to stand back up uh, for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> John 10, 22 to 30. Hear the word of the true and living God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter... And they follow me i give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand i and the father are one sounds the reading of god's holy and inspired word you may be seated let's commit our time to the lord our father in heaven we thank you for this day We thank you for this Lord's Day as we can gather again to celebrate your resurrection. We thank you for the privilege of being called by your name, that we are your people. Father, we pray now that as your word is proclaimed, we pray that you would send your spirit to do what only you can do, to open up ears, eyes, hearts, and minds, that we would receive your word for what it is, the word of God, not the word of man. Lord, I pray that it would be only your truth that is spoken here. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word unto the conversion of sinners and the edification of your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As we're picking up again with our series in John's Gospel, and we're right back into chapter 10. Uh, Now there does appear to be a bit of a break in the previous dialogue as we see John gives us a new setting, Uh, but there's also significant continuity between this section and what came before as Jesus picks up again on the theme of his sheep and here now gives us an absolutely loaded section. Uh, To list some of the doctrines right here in this short section, we would have uh, election, total depravity, uh, salvation, perseverance of the saints, among others. Uh, this was uh, the section that I think Pastor Josh was looking forward to when he selected our song of the month. Uh, he will hold us fast, and we will see why as we work through this text. So I, I say this up front to kind of front-load things, to whet your appetite uh, for those who have been looking forward to this section. Uh, and if all the doctrines that I just mentioned, all the words I just used sounded like gibberish to you, do uh, Don't worry. Uh, We will explain it as clearly as I am able as we work through it. So, uh, verse 22, we begin here with our setting. It says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So, the Feast of Dedication may not be familiar to you under that name, and you would look in vain to try to find this particular feast. In the Old Testament. Uh, this was not one of the feasts that was commanded by God in the law. Uh, this feast is better known by the name Hanukkah. Uh, at the time of Jesus, it was actually a fairly recent institution uh, celebrating events that took place in the intertestamental period, right? So the time between Malachi and Matthew, uh, celebrating the cleansing of the temple following the desecrations Of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, This was somebody who had overrun Jerusalem, had polluted the temple, and even set up a pagan altar there. Uh, The Jews then gradually gained strength, and under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, uh, Judas the Hammer, uh, they were able to recapture the temple and rededicate it to God, which is why this feast of Hanukkah is called the Feast of Dedication. Uh, D. Carson writes, the people celebrated the rededication of the temple for eight days, and it was decreed that a similar eight-day feast of dedication, Hanukkah, should be held every year. If you want to read about those events, you can find them in the Apocryphal books, uh, first and second Maccabees. Uh, this feast took place in the month of Kislev, which roughly correlates to our December, uh, which would place this discussion here that Jesus has uh, two months after the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, where Jesus had healed the man born blind. Uh, Jesus is again in Jerusalem in Solomon's colonnade, a a sheltered area, uh, quite possibly because, as it says, it was winter, and this would have been a warmer place to teach than being out in the open. Verse 24 then, So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, we've read through John, we've seen Jesus has said this pretty straightforwardly uh, to the woman at the well, as well as to the man who had been born blind. But it's true, at this point in his public teaching or in his public debates, Jesus had not come out and said directly these words, I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah. Um, Now, it's been speculated, in fact, that Jesus may have intentionally avoided these phrases, these words, these titles for himself, in part because of the expectations that were associated with them at the time of Jesus. Now, as we saw uh, when the Jews tried to make Jesus king by force, uh, we saw in chapter 6, the Jews were expecting their Messiah to be a political leader, perhaps one much like Judas Maccabeus who had helped bring religious freedom and a measure of political independence to Israel through armed rebellion. At the time of Jesus, messianic fervor was high. They were looking for a political deliverer, Uh, and it's possible that this is why Jesus preferred less common titles for himself, uh, such as his favorite title, Son of Man. Uh, Jesus may have been intentionally uh, actively trying to avoid the connotations of political deliverer that had become associated with the term Messiah or the term Christ in his day. And so the Jews now come looking for a straightforward answer from Jesus, possibly looking for something they could hold against him. And they say, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, right? Stop beating around the bush with these other titles and the different things you said. Just give us a straight answer answer. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, but you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus says, I have told you, you just didn't believe. Again, while it's true that he hasn't directly made the public statement, I am the Messiah, what he has said constitutes a clear and straightforward answer. Right, just consider what we've seen through John. Jesus' self-references. Right? Everything he said, all the, the ego I am the I am statements of Jesus, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Everything he has said, I am the bread of life. I am uh, the door, I am the good shepherd, Uh, his use of the Old Testament, his handling of titles, his discussions of the relation between God and himself, all of this and more, according to him, has been more than sufficient for those with the eyes to see, right? I have told you and you did not believe. And so not only does Jesus say that his words have been sufficiently clear, but he goes on to say his works have been as well. Right? The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Remember when Jesus was asked by the messengers from John the Baptist if he was the Christ or if they should wait and look for another, this was his answer. Matthew 11, verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the poor have good news preached to them. We've seen as well this ongoing debate through the Gospel of John among the Jews about how are they going to account for Jesus' miracle-working power. Right, this question has come up again and again. Does God listen to sinners Right? Can a sinner or a demon open the eyes of the blind? As Nicodemus confessed when he came to Jesus, at least some of the Pharisees had admitted early on that Jesus must be from God. Right? He says, We know that you are a man sent from God, for as he confesses, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John 3 Verse 2, and this is exactly what Jesus says. Not only have his words been clear enough to convey this truth, but his works have been as well. I told you, but you do not believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus says the issue has not been a lack of clarity The issue is not a lack of evidence There is more than enough evidence to testify to his identity The issue is that the Jews simply reject all of this evidence They don't believe Jesus' words and they don't believe the testimony of the works that he has done and the reason That they don't believe, Jesus says, is because they are not his sheep. Now, I remember for myself as a kid, beginning to read the Bible on my own. And this was one of those verses that stuck with me because it tripped me up. To me, my understanding of how salvation worked, when I read this verse, it sounded like Jesus said it backwards. Right? What I thought he should have said is, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. Right? I thought that believing was what made you one of Christ's sheep. And so it sounded completely backwards to say, as my old NIV has it, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Right? Catch the significance here. The reason this was problematic for me at the time was because I held a view which placed its primary emphasis upon the will of man, right? This is my choice. I decide whether or not to become a sheep, right? This has to be, I thought, rooted in man's free will, man's free choice. And as I began to see, this text was and is problematic for that view, so uh, if you are here today and you would hold that same perspective, right? if that's been your view, then I would humbly encourage you, do your best to put your presuppositions and traditions aside and just let Christ speak. Right, just let Scripture speak. If we are Christians, we need to follow and believe Christ. We need to follow and obey his word even if It leads us into conflict with what we've previously been taught or believed. As the scriptures say, let God be true and every man a liar. So follow Christ's reasoning. Look at how he uh, builds his argument here. See it in its own context. How is this statement functioning? Notice Jesus is explaining the unbelief of the Jews. You do not believe... Because you are not among my sheep. Uh, that is, you are not of my sheep. You are not included in their number. And if we look at how Jesus has already been using these terms, uh, we have seen how, uh, what Jesus means by his sheep. Right? To be a sheep is to be elect. Elect. It means to have been chosen by God. As verse 29, Jesus says that the Father has given these sheep to Jesus. And so the way that Jesus uses this metaphor, it is not becoming a follower of Christ that makes someone a sheep. That would have been my view. Uh, I can decide to become a sheep through my own free will. But we see that's not how Jesus presents it here. Rather, God the Father has given Christ's sheep to him. As we've seen, they are his. He knows them. He knows who they are. He is determined to bring all of his sheep into his fold. Remember, verse 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. So follow here, those other sheep... Are elect people who have not yet been called and brought into the fold but you notice that they are already his sheep before they are brought in they are already his sheep before they become his followers before they are born again before they are converted before they become Christians in Christ's metaphor believing the gospel does not make you a sheep Rather, you already were a sheep. You were just a lost sheep. Believing, becoming a Christian, is a sheep being joined to the flock. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And then we see as well, what do Christ's sheep do? Jesus says when they hear the voice of their shepherd... They will listen. They will listen to my voice. So as Jesus applies it here to these Jews who have rejected him, who have not heard his voice, who have not received the testimony of the works and his words, Jesus explains their unbelief this way, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. The reason they do not respond to the voice of the shepherd is that they are not his sheep. Now, this is very, very similar, actually, to chapter 6. Uh, there are many of the Jews have re- had rejected Christ's claim to be the bread of life, as Jesus said. Uh, I said to you, you have seen me, yet do not believe. So the question comes is, does this imply that Jesus has failed some way? That maybe he's not really the bread of life because there are these men rejecting him? Jesus answers that in John six thirty seven by saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me all that the father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes i will never cast out so the fact that those jews were then rejecting christ does not imply that christ failed in any way for all those whom the father had given to him would come to him to use his language in chapter 10 all of christ's sheep will listen to his voice his father has given him his sheep all of his sheep will listen they will come they will be brought in and so as Jesus explains the reason that these Jews here were not coming is because they were not his sheep so I hope we can see the problem that this causes for the view that I once held Jesus actually is not here inviting them to become his sheep by believing in him Rather, in this text, he is explaining their unbelief by declaring that they are not his sheep. Now as it applies to us, and as we go out with the gospel, uh, we must keep one important fact in mind, and that is this: Unlike Jesus, we do not know who the elect are. Right If you find someone who is currently an unbeliever, you cannot look into their hearts. Uh, there is no stripe on the back of their neck that would indicate that they are elect. Um, we do not know if this person you are dealing with is one of Christ's sheep or not. And so even if you tried to proclaim the gospel to them and it went down like a dumpster fire, that does not necessarily mean that they are not one of Christ's sheep. Right? Please do not quote this verse to them and say you just don't believe because you are not Christ's sheep. Right, Christ knows those who are his, he knew what was in a man, he knew men's hearts, he knew those whom the Father had given him, and so he could authoritatively declare what he does here to these Jews, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, but we must recognize we are not in that same position. We do not know who the elect are. So we should be very, very slow To give up on people. Christ's sheep do not always respond to the first gospel proclamation that they hear. Nor the second. Nor the third. And on and on. Think if you were to meet Saul of Tarsus as he was packing up his horse to go arrest Christians in Damascus. What would you have concluded about him? Right here is an enemy of the gospel. Right, somebody who has heard it, who un- seems to understand it, and has decided these are the enemies of God. Right, you meet Saul as he's packing up the horse, got those papers to go arrest the Christians in Damascus. Would you have guessed that he was a sheep? Would you have guessed that he was about to become an apostle? Would you have guessed that the good shepherd was about to effectually call him on the Damascus road? See, we are all equally dead in transgression and sin before God makes us alive. Our hearts are equally stony, and it requires a miracle truly for anyone to come to faith in God. So do not let the hardness of heart that you see in someone cause you to give up on them. Right, that hardness of heart does not indicate that they are not a sheep simply indicates they have not yet been effectually called. Many sheep have been brought in later in life, and many of them through the persevering prayer and consistent witness of their loved ones. So do not give up on people. Continue to pray. Continue to labor. God may yet call them. Let's continue on. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, these are beautiful statements from Christ. Uh, What does Christ say of his sheep? The sheep hear, the sheep are known, the sheep follow, the sheep receive eternal life, the sheep will never perish, and no one can snatch them away. Now, in the immediate context here, this is being contrasted with these Jews, right? They are not his sheep, so they do not hear his voice. He does not know them. They do not follow him, etc. But in contrast, his sheep do. So let's just unpack these statements for us. Christ's sheep hear his voice. If someone is Christ's sheep, then at some point in their lives... They will hear his voice. That is, they will listen to the voice of the shepherd. They will be brought in at some point. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And in fact, this text uh, where Jesus says that his sheep listen to his voice is actually one of the key texts that informs how we as a church approach preaching and evangelism. Right, our conviction is that the message does not need modification. Amen. Uh, We are frequently told today to get with the times, right? Stop holding on to such outdated, archaic beliefs. Right, if you want your church to grow, if you want to reach modern audiences, modern people, you need to modernize the message. But if you take Christ's words to heart, what you'll find is that it is not the word that needs changing. It is the sinful hearts of men. While, of course, we do seek to be relevant, interesting, and applicable in how we present the word, we are gripped by this conviction that Christ's sheep will listen to his voice. To use another of Christ's metaphors, There is good soil out there, and the seed does not need modification. Our job is not to update the seed, not to modify the message, but rather to faithfully, freely, and bountifully sow the seed. Our job is to proclaim the unaltered word and trust Christ when he says, my sheep will listen to my voice. And so we bring the voice of the shepherd, we proclaim his gospel, we proclaim his word, we bring his claims to bear in every area of life. We must not sand off the edges that sinners find too rough, for it is men's hearts and not the gospel that needs to change. The truth is bitter to those who have been believing lies, but when the grace of God changes hearts, those same truths become sweet. Christ's sheep hear his voice. Next, still in verse 27, Jesus says that he knows his sheep. He knows those whom the Father has given him. What a glorious thing, brothers and sisters, to be known by Christ. God the Son does not have the limitations that we do. I'm sure we can relate with struggling to remember people's names. Right? There seems to be an upper limit to how many people we can know. Christ does not have that problem. But as he said in verse 3, the good shepherd knows his sheep and he calls them out by name. See then how salvation is deeply personal if you are in Christ if you have been shown to be a sheep by being drawn to him then consider this Christ had your name on his heart as he went to the cross your salvation purchasing your pardon your forgiveness and seeing you one day ransomed in glory This was part of the joy that was set before him that caused him to be willing to endure the cross, despising its shame. And even now, as mediator of the new covenant, Christ, your great high priest, prays for you in the presence of the Father. Struggling saint, think on this meditate on this. Jesus knows his sheep. Christ laid down his life for his sheep. He called you by name. He prays for you, intercedes for you, your mediator, priest, your good shepherd. Christ knows his sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow Me. So again, in contrast to these Jews who are rejecting him, Jesus says, his sheep follow him. As sheep are led by their shepherd, so Christ's sheep follow him. He directs their paths. They go where he leads and do as he instructs. Now to those antinomian groups who say that Christians do not need to obey God Do not need to follow his law, do not need to be obedient or change their lives. Here we have another very challenging verse for their view. Jesus says, His sheep listen to his voice and follow him. Would you disagree? Would you disagree with Christ and claim that you can be a sheep but not follow the shepherd? Again, we remember Christ's sheep move, uh, follow him because coming to Christ involves a transformation of the heart. Right? God has moved in them. As Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless God moves within them, God does something in their hearts to incline their will to come to him. Or John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? To be born again is to be transformed. Right? It is to be regenerated, to receive new life. Christ's sheep, therefore, when they come, will have been drawn by the Father. They will be born again by the Spirit of God. This describes a supernatural work of God in the heart of men. We receive the Holy Spirit who then dwells within us. He gives us new desires, Galatians 5.16. He then sanctifies us, makes us holy, helps us to battle sin, and gives us the desire to follow Christ. So to say then that you can be saved, that you can be Christ's sheep, but still live in unrepentant sin... It is to say that there are some people who can come to Christ without being transformed. It is to say that there are some who can see and enter the kingdom of God without being born again, or that some can come to Christ without being drawn by the Father. It is to say that some people can become converted without the miracle of regeneration. Christ's sheep, as they are brought into the fold, will follow Christ. They begin living a life of obedience, a lifestyle of faith and repentance. So to you, Christ's sheep, you who have been brought into the fold, I think this verse is a challenge for us. Are you following Christ? Are you following him in everything as someone who has been born again, as someone who has been transformed? Is Christ directing your paths? Is he directing your paths as you decide what to watch on TV? Are you following the guidance of your shepherd? As you look at how you'll spend your time, is glorifying Christ your goal? Do you have a proper work and rest balance? Are you a workaholic? Or are you slothful, lazy, opposite extremes, but both are sins that miss the mark? Do you prioritize the Lord's day? Is gathering with the saints a priority to you? Or do you have a very long list of things that are all more important should a scheduling conflict arise? But right, if you're healthy enough to go to work, you're healthy enough to come to church. Amen. If you can get up at 5 or 6 to go to work every day, you can get up at 9 to make it to church every Sunday. If your kids can get up to be at school starting at 8.30, you can get them to church at 10.45. Honestly, even 9.45 or 9.15 for Sunday school and prayer would still let you sleep in compared to a school day. If you can make it to a dentist and doctor and chiropractor appointment early in the morning, you can make it to church. And so if you regularly don't, you may want to take a long, hard look at your priorities. Are you following Christ? Do you value what he values? Do you value worship the way he does? Do you value holiness the way he does? Do you value your own growth and sanctification as he does? Does your life show that you are a follower of Christ? Do you live as someone who has been forgiven, as someone abundantly grateful to God for his grace, as someone who has been transformed? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, And they follow me. Verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The good shepherd grants to his sheep eternal life. Now when you see that phrase, get excited, saints. Amen? Never let it go by in your Bible reading without it thrilling your soul. But bring to mind what scripture tells you eternal life means. Fill that word with its biblical meaning. Grab the metaphors, ask what they mean, chew on these things. Think on this, the presence of God in which there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think on what it means to enter into the joy of your master. Hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Think on reunions with your loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ. Think on streets of gold, eternal sinlessness, God himself wiping away every tear from your eyes. No more crying, death, pain, sickness, or misery. Death swallowed up in victory. Eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish now a word on christ giving us eternal life and that is he gives it to us as a gift given freely let us always remember that a gift is not the kind of thing that you can earn for nobody deserves a gift right if they deserved it it wouldn't be a gift it wouldn't be freely given it would be their due Romans 6.23 draws out the contrast. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Eternal life is a free gift. Wages are something that you earn, right? Nobody, after putting in two weeks hard work for their employer, takes their paycheck and then says, Ah, oh, thanks. You shouldn't have. No. They absolutely should have. They must. You've earned it. It is your due, your wages. That is not something freely given. It is something deserved, something earned. In contrast, a gift, in order to be a gift, is not deserved in the way that wages are. A free gift is freely given. So let us put the idea of earning salvation out of our minds. We will not be judged on our performance, thank God. It is not our good works. It is not our love. It is not our kindness or our church attendance records that will save us. Those things instead are the outworking of the grace that has saved and transformed us. Christ gives us eternal life, and as Romans 6.23 makes clear, that is a gift freely given. Our good shepherd has purchased eternal life, purchased our salvation by laying down his life for his sheep. No one took his life from him, but he laid it down of his own accord. He had the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. And so he died for his sheep, taking their penalty upon himself, bearing their sin and their guilt, their names, on his hands and his heart <clears throat> I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand now you may hear from those who want to maintain particular views of human free will To go back to the view that I once held. Uh, You may hear things like this. Well, sure, nobody can snatch Christ's sheep from his hand. The world isn't strong enough to do that. Satan isn't strong enough to do that. But if the sheep chooses, they can jump out of his hand. Heard that argument. The sheep can decide to leave, to apostatize, to forsake Christ. Their view is, in essence, it was man's decision to attain salvation, right to come to Christ in the first place, and so it is man's decision to leave. You see, they need some way to allow for man's autonomy, some way to insert human free will into this equation, into this very strong statement from Christ. But what I hope we've already seen is that if you take this passage as a whole, Letting Jesus speak, allowing him to define his own terms, this view does not work. For Christ's sheep are those who have been given to him by his Father, verse 29. Christ's sheep are called by name, verse 4. Christ has laid down his life for his sheep, verse 17. His sheep were already his sheep before he called them, verse 16. And Jesus explained the unbelief of the Jews by saying, you are not my sheep. That is the reason they do not believe. In contrast, his sheep listen to his voice and he knows them. They follow him. He gives them eternal life and they will never perish. Christ will keep them. The Father will keep them. And so to insert this possibility of jumping out of Christ's hand would be to undermine this entire passage. For this view would say that there are then some true sheep who never receive eternal life. That there are some sheep who will perish. Some sheep who end up rejecting Christ like the Jews did. Some sheep whom the Father had given to Christ for whom Christ died who were nevertheless lost in the end. That is not what it says. That is not what Jesus said. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Christ will not lose his sheep. They were his before he called them. His Father had given them to him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. If it is true that Christ's sheep receive eternal life, if it is true that they will not perish, then it's also true that they will not jump out of Christ's hand. The miracle that was worked in their hearts in order to bring them to Christ is not a miracle that will ever be done in vain. Those whom the Father draws, the Son calls, the Spirit regenerates and indwells will be kept by God. Christ points to the omnipotence of his Father as the reason. Right? Christ's sheep, he says, are in his hand, no one will snatch them out of my hand, and they're simultaneously in the Father's hand, and no one will snatch them out, for no one is greater than God. Not the wolf, not the thieves and the robbers. Christ's sheep are safe in his hand. I and the Father are one. Now, this, of course, has implications for Christ's divine nature, uh, which Pastor Brian will speak on next Sunday. Uh, But in this case, I think he's specifically talking about they are one in purpose. They are one in action. They are unified in their commitment to keep Christ's sheep. In this, there is deep comfort, confidence, peace, and joy. What is your hope for tomorrow? What is your source of confidence that you will not waver and abandon Christ as you're hit with everything that life throws your way? When you pass through the valley of the shadow of death. When you experience the dark night of the soul. When doubts assail you or that unbearably heavy weight of depression on your chest returns and refuses to lift. Will you be relying on your strength that day? I hope not. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If we are left to ourselves in this, we are all in trouble. I think it was John MacArthur who said that if you could lose your salvation, you would. But here, is our ground for confidence. No one can snatch Christ's sheep from his hand. No one can snatch the Father's sheep from his hand, for he is greater than all. As Jesus said, it is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, John 6, 39. Will the Son fail to do the will of the Father? Perish the thought. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, verse 6. You did not earn your salvation. God's choice to save you was not based on anything he foresaw in you. You did nothing to earn his grace. The ground of your justification before God, your right standing before him is not rooted in anything that you've done or can do, but is solely on the finished work of Christ, his righteousness, his atonement, his intercession, his resurrection power. The Spirit of God, who blows where he wishes at just the right time, chose to blow his wind in your heart and made you alive when you were dead in transgression and sin. The Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, the Spirit regenerated you. You can be confident the triune God will keep you. Praise God for the glory of his grace. This is where we live our lives, brothers and sisters in the confidence of assurance, in the confidence that God will keep us. And it is here then where we find the joy of the Lord. Let us live in the exultant joy of one whose salvation has been eternally secured by Christ. Not in a mechanistic way, not in a mechanical way, but in an active, lively perseverance as the Spirit continues to give us desires that are against the flesh. Let us live in the freedom of assurance and the joy of inexpressible gratitude. Let that joy flow from your fingertips. Let it pour out of your heart in an abundance of generosity, kindness, and love. Amen.